0: Thank you, Mr. Coltrane. Yay! This has been Alex the Lazy DJ. It's time for Living Riders, But first, we've got to do a quick test of the emergency alert system. Don't worry, it's not a real emergency.
1: To Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, John Hodgman. Greetings. <laughs> Greetings, John. Thanks for coming You're to welcome. the program. You're welcome. That
2: was They Might Be Giants with Anna Ng. <laughs> you know, they refer to me as the 19th They Might Be Giant.
1: And, and who, who is the who is Well, the they're the two they main they, you, might be and they Might Be Giants.
2: <laughs> John Linnell and John Flansburg. And then because I've had the pleasure of working with them from time to time, they call me the 19th. There are lots of actual band members, they kind managers, of, they come
1: in and out, roadies, roadie. Right?
2: And then there are fans <laughs> who are ahead of me in line. But right now I think officially I'm the 19th. They might be giant.
1: I wonder if you would ever have a chance to sort of if you became more competitive competitive about it if you could actually like edge your way up above some roadies. Oh no,
2: I started at the 36th. You have to understand. So
1: this has been. This has
2: been a long I'm very proud of my position. I'm sorry you don't find it to be impressive enough.
1: Wasn't on Wikipedia, John.
2: No, well maybe it it will be (laughs) now. Maybe it needs
1: to be added. Yeah. Well, at any rate, um, I should say that this is a pre-taped show on October twenty-seventh. John is in two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Thank you. Right. Specific. So, important. fire up
2: your time machine and go back to seven p.m. tonight and at the at borders. borders number one to see me read. <laughs> Otherwise, just listen to this recorded program
1: over and over and over again.
2: I recommend it
1: until you always remember the name John Hodgman. That's one way to remember.
2: That is name. that is one way to remember the name John Hodgman. I also offer in my new book more information than you require. An entire chapter on how to remember all sorts of names. With mnemonics. With mnemonics. Specifically the name John Hodgman. Yes.
1: Right. Won't well, help you out with other names, but Yes. You could call everyone.
2: Uh that's John. true. Um Yes,
1: yeah, so so you are in town.
2: Yes, I um, am. <laughs>
1: That's our basic premise here with your your latest book, More Information Than You Require, which just came out in October. October 21st. To be specific.
2: Very specific.
1: 2008. Of this year. Yes. Um, And so I'm going to read... Your bio from the back, John.
2: Very good. You will find that much like the book itself, it is more information than you require about me.
1: (laughs) Is that intentional? As as
2: written by me at great length for no particular purpose. Who edits you? No one, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) We'll get to that. We'll (laughs) come back to that. Okay. So here goes the bio. Before he went on television, John Hodgman was a simple writer, expert, and former professional literary agent living in New York City. In this capacity, he has served as the humor editor for the New York Times Magazine, an occasional public radio personality for This American Life, an advice columnist for McSweeney's and a freelance journalist specializing in food, non-wine alcohol, Battlestar Galactica, and most other subjects. This was enough of a career for any human, but then he wrote a book of complete world knowledge entitled The Areas of My Expertise and was asked to appear on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Where he continues to provide commentary as the show's resident expert, which is in quotes. Now, at 37, he has unexpectedly become a famous minor television personality, appearing as the PC in a series of television ads for Apple computers and accepting guest roles as the person wearing glasses in a variety of films and TV shows, including Battlestar Galactica, a show he once wrote about as a journalist. From time to time, he is asked to describe his professional life and, in particular, the effect of this dramatic and surprising change of fortune, and typically, he finds he cannot do it.
2: Okay. <laughs> the end. Like, Tune in next week. I feel breathless. we will read the front flap
1: <laughs> oh for my an hour. For an hour. Yes, this, this, is, like, this is a lot. It's
2: too much. It's, Here's what I would cut. Well, well, okay. First of all, it shouldn't be simple writer. It should be mere writer. Certainly after That's just says, switching
1: out. That's not cutting.
2: I, well, I know, but this is how I edit. I just replace <laughs> words with other words. So I would have capitalized Resident Expert. You probably heard that one yourself. Yes. And I would have cut definitely... Uh, he's appeared as, quote, the person wearing glasses, unquote, in a variety of films and TV shows, including Battlestar Galactica, full stop. That other stuff was unnecessary, a show he once wrote about as a journalist.
1: That's true. That's true. That's just dragging it down, sort of.
2: No, it's just I'm, I'm pushing. <laughs> it's, it says something that you should be able to infer. And then I'm not sure about the last line. It's very confusing. Probably cut that, too.
1: Well, actually, it's... I
2: often of- I often can describe how it happened. So I just can't believe it.
1: Well, how did it happen, then? Describe it.
2: Well, I wrote the book, The Areas of My Expertise, which, as I'm sure your listeners know from what? my last conversation on living writers... Because that was uh, 2006. That was 2006, uh, uh, many, many years ago, to the tune of two. And I wrote a, a book. Uh, it was a, uh, an almanac of complete world knowledge, full of all sorts of fascinating trivia and historical oddities and amazing true facts, with the advantage that, in my book, all the amazing true facts were made up by me. And... Uh, I was able to go on a number of different uh, broadcast media to promote the book, including Living Writers, a famous radio show here in Ann Arbor, and also The Daily Show with John Stewart in November of 2005 when the hardcover came out, actually. And um, I thought that was going to be the most exciting thing that ever happened to me because I was a huge fan of the show. Um, and it went well. And they said, you should come back and do comedy sometime. And I'm like, you guys really are funny. That's a funny joke. But they were deadly serious. Deadly. They, well, not deadly. They didn't try to murder me. <laughs> I wouldn't but have then it they, them. But then they called uh, very soon after that appearance and said, can you provide uh, a thousand words on nuclear proliferation in Iran and make it funny by Monday? And if it works, we'll put you on the air. And it worked, and they did. And then suddenly I had this career in television that I had never never prepared for and was sort of just beginning when I last visited Living Writers.
1: And, and before that, you were... Um involved with radio you've oh you've done radio for years then with this american life
2: yeah i had uh, yes with I, ira glass that was my the, big aspiration was to become a radio celebrity it really was i had uh, i'd done radio and well in high school at a college at a nearby college um wmfo in medford it's the tufts university station nice they had a very strange policy
1: of they letting would, high school students <laughs> into do their radio they
2: would they would a lot
1: <laughs> we too here, though. Did you? Some, yeah. They had
2: a certain portion of their airtime, which they reserved for community members. And community members primarily meant um, radical anarchists who, who lived around Harvard Square. Um, and one of those anarchists was a permanent French language substitute at my high school, Brookline High School. And so I subbed for his show. And eventually the community expanded to include, you know, incredibly... Um, comfortable, spoiled teenagers from Brookline who wanted to play Billy Bragg songs.
1: That's what I was going to ask. So, what what was your show like? Billy that's Bragg you, songs, Billy Bragg? pretty
2: much. That was it.
1: You have a Billy Bragg fact in here, right?
2: Uh, when we went on Solid
1: Gold, I think. Yes, yes, that's right. 1988, July 23rd, Hollywood Billy Bragg performs the International on Solid
2: Gold. Yes. <laughs> was there any more to that than that? That's <laughs> no, amazing. Was, you had that. You had it dog eared. I did. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, I just love the idea that there was a guy singing communist songs, and uh, and was for a brief time almost a pop star. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he ever appeared he, on Solid Gold, though.
1: No. Well, but that was a great. I mean, if he was, I wish there was something more about his dancing, because if he was in one of the pyramids, or right. if he
2: was. But he wasn't just radical, and he wasn't just sort of contrarian in his politics like you know authority sucks that's old news and but he was very oh. specifically a communist yes I thought yeah. that, was, that was
1: a thought enchanting a thoughtful emoting
2: yes exactly communist. so but, but, that's but, why i dedicated an entire radio show to his work <laughs> until i started sort of pondering you know pouring over their uh dog-eared collection of lps much like you have here and discovering other things mainly sleepy labeef but then I went on to um, uh, to college, and I and I did other things. So you went and then to Yale. I went to Yale But that University. was after
1: you, you did a stint with your clarinet.
2: I no, did no stints. <laughs> no clarinet stints. I, like a number of other, you know, well-heeled, well-rounded Renaissance young men of women of Brookline, Massachusetts, took uh, some instruction in the classical music arts. <laughs> right. I a few years of clarinet at the... And viola at the New England Conservatory and the All Newton Music School.
1: Oh, viola too. Yeah, you
2: know, viola. You do the viola, then you go automatically to first chair. You don't have no. You don't have no competition. <laughs> no competition. Not in, not in viola.
1: <laughs> but that's it's such a beautiful instrument. So, and then the it clarinet great. too. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at.
2: Um, no, because you would not play the clarinet very well if you did. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm running out of oxygen.
1: It's true. That's, we're in sort of an happening. airless room, <laughs> listeners. was getting into
2: some very deep biography, but the point was radio.
1: That's true. So and, and so then you you what kept indeed going? what
2: performance what performance chops I had to the moment I was plucked from obscurity by the Daily Show uh, were developed on stage at a bar in Williamsburg, which is not there anymore. So
1: with the little gray
2: book, with the little gray book lectures, which was sort of a you know after I left. Um, I worked in book publishing for a while, and when I left, you know, I, I I found readings to be interesting because you get to meet authors and have alcohol, but boring because the readings tended to be a little boring. So we attempted to, my friend Jonathan Colton and I tried to build this sort of literary variety show based around a theme very much ripped off from This American Life, but that would be instructional and fun and commission writers to essentially write new material oh, on subjects cool. like How to Tell the Future and or what will happen in the future, how to win a fight, how to negotiate all kinds of deals and contracts. That's do then. Once a month or so with music yeah. and comedians and writers and stuff. And that was sort of my audition to the world for a big public radio, you know, empire program that I would that I would develop and syndicate. We recorded a pilot and everything, and, you know, PRI was very kind about it. But accidentally I went on television, and that sort of destroyed my radio career.
1: Oh, because it, do- it seems like the Little Gray uh, lecture series is on hiatus at the moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, we did one right up until, I mean, the last one to date was uh, in October of 2005, To you know, at the same time my book came out. And after that, the book and or The Daily Show really absorbed all the time that I would have given to hosting a, you know, $5 literary variety show in Brooklyn. (laughs) But, you know, this all of this nonsense will come to an end and eventually and then I will be. Maybe. Still desperate for attention, so i <laughs> bar this,
1: is this. Is this what it's all about then?
2: Oh, you did a creative writing program, didn't you? Why are you asking me? You know the answer to that question just as well as anybody else.
1: Is it time for a break? No.
2: no.
1: <laughs> I, I, sh- I look uncomfortably around. Left. Yeah, <laughs> That's
2: true. I should have. Well, said I mean, to put it, one can put it charitably, which is that you want to share a worldview with other human beings, but. You want to be seen sharing it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. But, but with radio, you have that great um, the aspect of not being seen. But there is anonymity. You are completely seen, especially with... O- I'm highly
2: visible. You are. On television. All the time. Well, it's a visual medium, it turns out. <laughs>
1: That's right. It's, yeah. We're not that techno- technologically challenged here, John. I I, familiar no, I'm familiar with just, television.
2: I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> but, um... But, but it's true. My students today, when I was telling them that you were in town, yeah. when I got to the part of, well, he's the PC, yeah, and that's they all people, went, oh. oh. "Ah!" Yeah. But yeah, I thought they were gonna they were gonna key in on the Daily Show. That's
2: perfectly reasonable. Well, you know, they might. Who knows? I mean, I do get I do get approached a lot by people who recognize me from the Daily Show, mm. or notice that I'm wearing a Daily Show jacket. <laughs> That I got at the Christmas party two years ago. Well,
1: it's Patagonia. I mean, that's good quality material.
2: I know. I'm advertising all sorts of things.
1: <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna try and get an iron on in the back. Of WCBN. I know. As I, you know. know. <laughs> I hate
2: to wear those brand names. You know, I loathe advertising, but <laughs> it's a very fine jacket. Um, and for, for, you know, but the the reality is, the odds are that if anyone recognizes me at all, it's because you know those ads have been playing 24 hours a day. Um, and have been seen by millions of people on on not just basic cable, yeah, or or you know, and certainly not on public radio, but you know on broadcast television. And it is very interesting to appreciate you know for all of the sort of um, transformation that broadcast media is going through, both on on the air and on radio, I should say, in TV, in terms of breaking down into millions of little niches mm. and almost direct one to one, you know, podcasting. Um, uh, You know, webcasting, um, you know, it's like you can create your own TV show, your own TV station and your own radio station right away tomorrow with very little money. But it's still amazing to, to witness then, and but be then part who, of. But
1: then who hears it, John? Like that would be the, if you create your own, like you, it's about being connected or getting the listenership because there's so much competition then for people's attention
2: well yes but I mean I think what's very what's very what's happening why is Hugh waving at us what is it Hugh (laughs) try to be a little bit more discreet (laughs) you know I think that the beauty of where we are right now whether you're a writer or a singer songwriter or a poet forget it the poets are going to lose anyway hey sorry (laughs) Um, whether you want to create TV, whether you want to create music or even poetry. Even that, that. That, you know, we are in a position where an individual, for the most part, has access to a worldwide audience um, for very little investment of time and money. And that means there's a lot of dross out there, but that means there's also a lot of really great stuff that never would have gotten out there before from all over the world. And honestly, how many people do you need to have listen? I mean, look—you've chosen the life of a poet. You know that your audience is going to be relatively small compared to, I mean, a, a, a minor TV personality. I was—I was, I was gonna—I <laughs> was gonna say somebody writing songs about falconry. Like, <laughs> oh God, I wish we had one to play. <laughs> I know, awesome. I know. I mean, that's <laughs> that's awesome. If you are just a—if you're just a songwriter about falconry. You would you know that you would have an amazing you would have a huge audience online automatically. Um, which is not to run down poetry. But I just mean to say that, you know, my good friend Jonathan Colton I think is a great example of how you know. He's in he, the feral a, part of this. Uh, yes, and and normally he accompanies me on tour, but he is now in in Europe. I mean, in England and uh, Ireland and Scotland performing for huge crowds and his original songs that he sells over the Internet. And he does not have a major label deal and his stuff is not available for sale in you know, physical oh, right. form over right. there. You know? And that's because he has created an audience that is very interested in him and he has, has nurtured it and responded to it in a, in a very smart and, and generous way. And I think that's, you know... And that, and
1: that 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 relationship was possible via the, the web, the internet. Of course. The, yeah, okay.
2: absolutely. And I think any writer... I mean, this is probably the most encouraging time to be uh, a writer of any kind for that reason. I mean...
1: Let's take a short break and we'll be right no, back. No, I want to keep going. <laughs> we still have more time, John. Oh, you're, we do. Okay, you're listening well. to Living Writers. John Hodgman here in the studio today with more information than you require. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
0: Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline, but on the Che a highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment. So he walks over and he's trying to sympathise with her, but he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner.
1: Hi, we're back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, John Hodgman. John Kellogg Hodgman.
2: That is accurate. (laughs) Um, What were we just talking about? What happens during the break (laughs) of this program? Do the the students, do the children just listen to the music or do do you... do PSAs and stuff in the middle? Oh, with this, like, what's happening? Oh,
1: just the music. Oh, really? that, Like as that's yeah. So it's a little. Oh, break. that was an
2: opportunity for me to sort of clear my throat and stop talking crazy.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> for for us to have a thumb war oh, okay. to figure out what we're going to talk about next. Um You're very good. People on can this. go to the bathroom then.
2: This is you know uh, it's a very good idea. Radio, Get some more radio thumb wars. Let's go. Ready?
1: <laughs> All right. One,
2: One. How do you do it? Two. Through. Three, four, four let's, let's have, have a thumb, thumb war. Or I win. Uh,
1: ugh, it's true. I yeah. can't. I'm, I'm going to. Uh, you okay.
2: didn't even need to say it was true. Everyone knew. Yeah, it's Everyone true. Everyone listening knew. <laughs> That's true. Right. Sorry. You weren't focused.
1: It's true. I wasn't. I'm, I...
2: It's okay. You're a poet. No one expects you to be focused. What were you saying? What? I say that fondly.
1: John, you were going what? to tell us about Billy Bragg because Hugh Hugh managed to go find the song. Oh, I was just um, saying that's
2: that's from Workers' Playtime. It's one of the most beautiful albums, and I should know because I played it about five thousand times on my radio show back when I had one when I was a teenager. And you know, I but I don't have it on my um, I don't have it on my iPhone. You know, I don't have it on my you know that product that I like so much. I don't have it on my iPhone because. I like I could listen to it all day long, but it's now it's pure nostalgia. Like I feel like I need to keep learning but, about new things.
1: But what is wrong with that? Do you feel like if you if you let that in, then you will stop getting like new music and looking outward? Well, I'd like you,
2: perhaps. I uh, fear my mortality. I'm I'm concerned about growing closer to death.
1: Is that why you're writing these books, so that you will always be alive in Uh, our hearts and in our literature?
2: Oh, believe me, writing books is the wrong way to guarantee your immortality. You just need to go to the Strand bookstore in New York City one day, and you will realize writing books is not going to buy you anything but, uh, you know, a quick trade for a, you know, Paul Anderson science fiction book at the Strand. You know, that's... Uh, you know what i'm saying it's just there's it's, so many i mean it's very it's, sobering to walk in when there you and go, see yeah or know, even it reminds actually, you that you have to write for for different and better reasons than merely you know you want to find an audience obviously but if you're writing for fame or poeting for fame i got to tell you i've been i've been on i've been on that other i've been on the other side of of what is considered to be minor television fame and it is so far beyond what you know, you're reaching so many more people. That's what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say is like, you know, um, you can you can reach an audience, of quite sizable audience of thousands and thousands of people as a writer. And I remember when I worked in book publishing, the sobering fact was that they said a literary novel had a maximum audience in the United States. A first literary novel had a maximum audience of 5,000 people yeah, right. in the United States. And, you know, now millions and millions of people will see... Me, you know, pitch a sneezing fit, or dress up in a fat suit in an Apple ad, and they will see me and they will know me in a way that they would never know me as a writer. And I don't, and I'm not sad about that. That's just the way it is. But I'm, in, I'm happy to be in the ads, obviously.
1: And, and in in that way, it also that will bring them to your right. your work. So that's, right? but right? I You're mean, the, it's like you know, that's a
2: that's a walk through the strand. I mean, for for people who want to write, you have to first write for a good reason, such as you can't help, but no. not write. Yeah. And then, you know, the the upside is that you are able to reach an audience that you weren't able to reach even when I started out writing um, seriously in, you know, in the early 90s. Like, there was no internet. There was no way to reach all those people. And really, how many people do you need to reach? You can reach that 5,000 people very easily, mm-hmm. um, relatively speaking, right now. And uh, if you had Colton on this show, he would tell you. I mean, I can't remember the... Sort of the, the futurist who posited the idea of a thousand true fans that an independent artist of any kind, if they have a thousand true fans who will buy everything that he or she puts out, they will have a living, which is unheard of in the history of i mean they they'll'll be able to support themselves as an artist which' unheard of since you know da Vinci was taking money from the Medicis, you know what I mean to live right was it da, was it da Vinci or Michelangelo? One of those two Italian guys.
1: Yes. That's I always I, to say. I get lost with the Italians sometimes. And while
2: I am certainly an old media personality now, I mean, you know, I am not, uh, I'm, I I hunt and peck around on the Internet a little bit. But, oh, you know, exactly. I am known from to, to a great number of people through the Internet and to a smaller number of people through, you know, the high technology of books you know as opposed to i'm not a blog i'm not a blogger per se I, imi- I imitate a blogger from time to time but um the fact remains that were it not for the internet i would not have, i would not be sitting here with you t in this wonderful ballroom where we are hosting exactly this program because of uh, another thing we were talking about during the break, the McSweenies.
1: Oh, yes. Right. Yes. So was, um, with the chronology of things, John, were you Forget working the
2: chronology. with, none of it makes any sense.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's, you're so specific in here about <laughs> yeah. days passing in each stage. <laughs> but, but, but was the McS- McSweenies, were you working on that before you were doing? What happened was col- I went to
2: college and I wanted to write serious short stories and then I got a job, moved to New York, and very quickly needed a job. I thought I would get a job in publishing, because that's where the money is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. You need to be underwritten for that, yeah, don't you? I
2: know. Though that's a job that was originally existed only for people with trust funds, you know, yeah, and second yeah. careers. And I worked at a literary agency, and I loved it a lot. But I realized very quickly that there was not much of a market for, you know, people who were not willing to write novels. And mm. I did not, I mean, if you've read my book, you know I barely like to write complete sentences. So long form is not my thing. So I decided to become a literary agent, but I still dabbled in writing and I wrote little pieces for magazines and I ended up writing some pieces for This American Life. But even before that happened, I got an email from Dave Eggers saying, we're soliciting material for this new magazine, McSweeney's, and we're looking for all sorts of magazine articles that were rejected other places, or um, you know even short stories that haven 't been finished and since I had a lot of those, <laughs> I started sending them to him and he didn't he didn 't want any of those. So <laughs> I instead sent him How a joke he... letter that I wrote to a friend of mine pretending to be a a professional literary agent, a very you know fancy professional literary agent who it was revealed very quickly in the letter is completely deranged, you know, and is offering all sorts of advice that clearly the recipient of the letter doesn't want and didn't ask for, but is going to get anyway. Which like is this book. And that, we what's that? Is that? Well, I mean, it was the beginning, it was the beginning of all the writing that I did for McSweeney's, and that false authority figure character became the inspiration for both my first book and this one and the and the one that I will write after this one.
1: Are you working on it right now? John? No, right or now I'm it?
2: talking to you. I'm fully, am fully focused. That,
1: you are so polite. You I were
2: raised fully right. Fully focused, <laughs> due to my non-poet status. I'm not thinking about other things.
1: You're not off on some moor somewhere with the wind
2: in your hair. I love, I love poets. Please don't get me wrong. I represented a great poet for a brief period of time. A woman named Deborah Diggs. Taught at Tufts University also. Oh,
1: all these, connections. all these connections. Everything
2: is connected. Every life is like Everything. that, though, you know. And,
1: and so uh, that is so interesting,
2: though, how this falls. But false if I had not gotten came... that email oh, from oh, right. Dave Eggers, yeah,
1: and how did, how I was did... sitting
2: there at the literary agency going, uh, This is pointless.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Not quite, but <laughs> I got that email, and it turns out it wasn't even meant for me, someone had forwarded it to me. So without the forward function of email, I wouldn't be here. Because when I wrote Dave back, his first response was, who are you and why are you writing me? He was very angry. He was like, this is only for certain people. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but blah, blah, blah. And we, huh. we struck up a friendship from there. After that- <laughs> I think he's a little more open to reading, you know, to, to moments of providence like that now.
1: Right, right.
2: But um, you know, we were all getting new to the te- we we're all new to the technology at that point. We we're still figuring out all the etiquette.
1: Right, right.
2: And of course, McSweeney's really gave me the permission to write funny, openly funny, as yes. opposed to these serious, earnest. I mean, I, I did have some success with serious, earnest short stories, but you did, yeah. Well, I mean, I published one in the Paris Review. Oh, well, no, that's no one's that was okay. No one's sneezing at that. I haven't. I didn't. I didn't read that one. No, no, that's fine. Very few people have, but um, but the people who did, you know. And then I would read it aloud in certain venues and they'd say, I didn't know that that was a funny story until you read it. And I'm like, it wasn't supposed to be a funny, but oh, there was wow. on some level it was. And Dave really allowed me to write funny. And that's where I really discovered a voice that I would use for the rest of my career, you know. So what do
1: you think that was? And one? then it was
2: writing for the for the website, they Ask a Former Professional Literary. Yes. I mean, it allowed me to quit my job. As a literary agent. <laughs> and then start writing an advice column call former Ask a Former Professional <laughs> Literary Agent.
1: That's like a dream, isn't it?
2: And develop and develop readers, you know, develop a relationship with readers that I still have a relationship with today. You know, so. But,
1: but with this, finding this, this humorous and voice of That was of my authority. one moment
2: of being on the cutting edge of the new media. You were, and too. Then I, and then I went and immediately reverted. I was just immediately reverted back to old media. I just put Billy Bragg on the iPod <laughs> Became a nostalgia act.
1: <laughs> so you are, <laughs> so you are a luddite like me. Yeah. No, no. Um, but so, but with this this humorous voice of of authority that yeah. you found. So what happens next, John? Like what? Because is this a voice that you'll always inhabit then, or is this, or is there other? Do you have other plans for your art?
2: Well, I no, I don't have plans, um, but. I think that the only the only way to keep moving is to uh keep moving, I guess is callous obviously obviously I'm not going to have much of a career writing stupid aphorisms for the radio, but <laughs> I think I mean to say that you know between the first book and the second book, my life changed dramatically, and I realized that uh in as I was working on the second book that i I was getting stuck a lot, and it it took me a while to realize that I was getting stuck because I wasn't acknowledging how my life had changed. I was really just trying to write in the same voice as the first book, which was to say... You know, the same sort of, the same kinds of jokes, the same false facts, the same false trivia. And there's a lot of just easy peasy false trivia, you know, a lot about how to rid your house of mice and ants and Scotty dogs and right. other <laughs> infestations, you know. I mean, it's not a heavy book by any means. Do you know what I mean? There, but, but is that when
1: you went through and you kind of um, you, you added that part on about the minor television celebrity to the I title? Which I written and then... for This
2: American Life originally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was during the period I was writing the book and Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, said, will you come out to L.A. and do something for our live show? And I said, and, and the subject of the, the, the subject of the show or the theme of the show was te- what I learned from television. Yes. And so I would learned quite a bit from television at that point. I was like, this is finally the chance to sort of address what's happened in my life and how it's different. So I wrote the very, again, very earnest. I mean, it has jokes in it and stuff, but it's it's not
1: but it's true it's, it's true. not as if the facts are it's, trying to take you somewhere uh, yeah exactly it's largely no, true yeah
2: and so i ended up taking that back and sort of incorporating it into this book in part because you know you need to you need to fill out the words you know <laughs> but also because it was a piece of writing that i liked a lot and it, and it started to talk about you know how my life had had changed i mean i've i've told this story before so i don't want to bore your listeners if you've heard it but i still think it's really to me what in crystallizes it was in the first book, I had a joke about all of the TV shows and movies that I had made cameo appearances in, as though I were George Plimpton, as though I were this Tweety literary figure who was constantly showing up in weird movies and stuff. So, I mean, that was a joke. Obviously, I would not appear. in that. But now
1: the it's true, though. Like the, Now it's the flight of the Concorde yeah. the movies. Well, like, yeah, like baby I mean, mama. and or, that makes yeah. it
2: very hard to make that into a joke. You know, what, what I considered to be a ridiculous exaggeration of what my life might be Became. turned out to be true. And I didn't know, I didn't even appreciate it was happening until... You know, after I'd done several of these appearances and I was working on the book and I'm like, something's different here. Why can't I talk from that same Tweedy place anymore? It's like, well, now my life is my life is very different. You know, I don't I'm not wearing Tweed. I'm wearing tuxedos.
1: (laughs) And that's instead of pajamas. (laughs) Instead of pajamas.
2: I don't, you know, where once I had to, you know, rent my own pants. Now (laughs) I now I buy new pants every day and throw them away. Just like Jay-Z that's right yeah we're gonna take a break finally people
1: can go throw away their pants <laughs> <Ugh. Live long. laughs> okay you're listening to living writers today john hodgman i'm t hetzel we'll be right back
0: code monkey get up get coffee code monkey go to job code monkey have boring meeting with boring manager rob Rob say code monkey very diligent But his output stink His code not functional or elegant What do code monkey think? Code Monkey think maybe manager wanna write goddamn login page himself Code monkey not say it Out loud code monkey not crazy Just proud Code Monkey likes me Like you Cold monkey hang around at front desk Till your sweater look nice Cold monkey offer buy you soda Bring you cup, bring you ice You say no thank you for the soda Cause soda make you fat Anyway you busy with the telephone No time for chat Code Monkey have long walk back to cubicle He sit down, pretend to work Code Monkey not thinking, so straight Code Monkey not feeling, so great Code Monkey like Fritos Code Monkey like and Mountain Dew Code Monkey very simple man A Big, warm, fuzzy, secret
1: heart Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks to Hugh Stimson for engineering and getting all these great songs. That was
2: Jonathan Colton playing his big hit, Code Monkey. Probably, <laughs> I mean, that is a song that changed his life.
1: Yeah, and he Completely. might be he might be playing that right now in England or Ireland on his tour.
2: That's true. Right. I don't know if he has a show tonight, but if anyone's listening in England, when will this air? I don't know just yet. You don't know?
1: Maybe in a, a week?
2: Maybe in a year. <laughs> The day before I come back, the next time in two years, or maybe the quick, day before I come quick, back. For put the it on. The paperback of my book will probably come out next fall. If I come back, it's like, oh, we haven't played it yet. We gotta, we gotta put that on, so that I don't have to lie to him and say that we played it.
1: No, no, we'll be playing this over and over again. We will.
2: Well, on mark October 3rd, my words. Colton is playing the Shepherd's Bush Empire. Oh, in, nice in London. in London. Oh yeah, and it's a big house. So if you, October you or 15th. any of your friends are gonna be. Available, you should go in London. Do you podcast this? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, so go. that, yeah, so could very and well. Reach. We
1: do have some some English listeners. That's the most powerful. I mean, I mean it's, it's the most English.
2: important or uh, uh, most incredible time to be in radio as well. I mean, with podcasting, yeah, I mean, it is. You know, there there is more great radio being created now. I think than since you know uh the, the golden age of radio say. <laughs> that's
1: right <laughs> that golden time that golden time whatever
2: that was you i know, know yeah the, twi- <laughs> the 20s and 30s and so forth do you know what i mean like yeah
1: and with this i wish we had yeah. some sound effects like we could do that we could yeah. try and bring back the golden age for a moment
2: this is the sound of me hitting my book <laughs> right that it organic? could also be a horse I did that with my mouth <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like that guy on prairie home companion
1: exactly He is amazing.
2: And then he started hitting his book. Oh, wow. I can't (laughs) believe how he did that.
1: And that time um, John was using his underarm. What? (laughs) Okay. Um,
2: I was speaking about my enormous wealth and my incredible glamorous life now. And so I'm going to read to you a portion from my book entitled What I Plan to Do with My Enormous Wealth.
1: Just rub it in, John. Just rub it in.
2: (laughs) People presume that now that I am a famous minor television personality, I must have millions and millions of dollars. Of course I do. I am on television. And now that I am incredibly wealthy, I share with my fellow millionaires a desire to help make the world a better place. Here's what I plan to do to give a little back. Priority one, build a dolphin sanctuary. One cannot grieve too much for the plight of these sensitive, intelligent creatures. Just because they taste like tuna it does not mean we should shoot them in the head whenever we see them. However, you can appreciate that as someone who came up through the mean streets of Brookline, Massachusetts, and Yale University, I do not believe in handouts. Therefore, my sanctuary will only be open to those dolphins that speak and understand English. But, you ask, isn't this a very small portion of the dolphin population? Yes, it is. But English is now the lingua franca of the world. It's in the best interest of these creatures to learn to speak it. After all, if dolphins are going to talk anyone out of shooting them in the head, they're going to do it in English, not in some high-pitched, cheap, cheap sonar babble. In this way, I feel I am doing the dolphins a service. I'm providing an incentive to the dolphins to raise themselves up by their fin straps and start contributing to society. I will also offer sanctuary to any chimp or gorilla that knows sign language. They can be my butlers. I have several other priorities, but that's priority one for my enormous wealth. (laughs) So you see, I had to adapt my my literary voice and acknowledge that my my literary, my sort of frame of reference had changed and I have no doubt that it shall change dramatically <laughs> before the third book is written, and maybe the next one will be uh, about John Hodgman, a former a former minor television personality <laughs> and now and now professional poet
1: <laughs> He just keeps on about. It.
2: No, I, I. But I. I wish to be clear, both for sake of karma and simple reality. I do not expect this fantastic life to last as long as it had so far, or very far into the future. One cannot live one's life that way. So,
1: what are you doing? Are you just saving, or like, or what do you? But you try, what does it you allow know, you, you to do then, John? Because it seems like it'll it'll just open up so many other things, other possibilities, which you can walk into well, or the, jump into. You know, the
2: reason that I worked for a time. Honestly, as a literary agent, and then as a magazine writer, and then, you know, um, it was was really to sort of find opportunities to weasel my way into the lives of people that I found inspiring and interesting. You know, and those were the... Those were the like Cuervo Man. Like Cuervo Man, for example. Like in This American Life, I... I uh, I had, as a magazine writer, been called to go down to a private island owned by Jose Cuervo Tequila and discovered a guy whose job it was to act like an idiot and be what he called himself a a party catalyst. And so I really wanted to know more about his life. So I, you know, I used a, a story for this American life to sort of facilitate an investigation into what it is like to be a party catalyst. And that's how I met a lot of my I mean a lot of my clients or people that I read or knew of and was interested in. Bruce Campbell, for example, I weaseled my way into his life pretty good. <laughs> uh, that's why I did the literary vari- that's why I did the little gray book lectures, that literary variety show, so that I could reach out to people that I found inspiring, like uh, well, Colton, who I'd known for many years and, and really wanted to hear him play music in front of a live audience, and he wasn't really interested in doing it at the time, so I, I said, you, ha- you should come and do music at the show. And so, geez. So, it was mainly for my own amusement, do you know what I mean? But and, then
1: this, that changed his life then.
2: No, he changed, you, he changed, you are he changed alive. his <laughs> life. He changed his life. And then now, I mean, there, the opportunities for ridiculous adventures along those kinds are now, you know, they are more numerous and they are more bizarre. I mean, what you said in reading my extremely long backflap cover is true. I used to write about Battlestar Galactica, the new show, because I'm a big geek, super geek for that show. And then when I had the opportunity to, when I learned that they weren't going to be doing any episodes beyond this season, this fourth season, and the time was up for that show, I I contacted everyone I knew who could help me. And I said, I'd like to be on the show in some way. I just want to press a button. And that happened. And so suddenly, you know, I weaseled my way in as a journalist onto that set in Vancouver and had a great time in 2005. And then I weaseled my way back onto the set this past spring in 2008 as talent. And um, it made me feel like a stalker. (laughs) Made me feel like I had gone crazy. But then it's like, what can't you do then? Um, I can't star in the Watchmen (laughs) movie. (laughs) And that was the other thing. I was like, when, they, when I found out that Zack Snyder was making a movie of Watchmen, I'm like, um, just letting you know, my talent agents, I am available for the role of Rorschach or Night Owl. I don't think they'll give me Rorschach, but I'll take Night Owl because it's plausible because he's a big fat guy with glasses in the comic book. And uh, they, they weren't interested. They're like, we could probably get you a, a role where you push a button. I'm like, no, the lead or nothing.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's what it They chose
2: in. nothing. <laughs> Looks like it's gonna be a good movie though.
1: <laughs> well that's, that's Greetings,
2: nerds. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well that's generous of you to say. Well I was um I was thinking the first time I ever um saw you or heard of you, John yes. was um like a while ago, when you were involved with the McSweeney's people. So I had read your advice column. I am still
2: involved with them, proudly.
1: Yes, great, great. Um, but I'm going
2: to need them once my star falls.
1: <laughs> okay, none of this, none of this talk. I don't think it's going to fall. But you saw, um, you
2: You lived in Seattle. We yeah, were talking about this during the break. Yeah. And, Might as well ignore all this pretense of you bringing it up again. I know exactly what you're talking about. You came to the Hugo House show in Seattle. It has to like, have been in 2000. Four? Three, Three two. two. It was 2002 because we were scheduled to go almost immediately after September 11th.
1: Oh, right. And then it was delayed, And then actually. I delayed it because
2: I didn't want to fly for a little while. And then we, it was, I think, the spring of 2002.
1: Right, right. That, I it, do remember It was Neil that, Pollack, Neil Pollack
2: yep. uh, who, who had the first McSweeney's book, the Neil Pollock Anthology of American Literature, who had been my client. And I sold his first book to McSweeney's Press, For zero dollars, that was how good I was. (laughs) Um, But why'd you
1: do that to him, John? (laughs) uh,
2: Well, Nicktoons has a very interesting arrangement where it gives a much higher royalty. Oh, I see. In in, you know consideration that they don't really pay advances, so it actually made a certain amount of sense at the time. Yes, and he was promoting it, and I was. You were with him. Yeah, I was. I was. I appeared with him in a couple of events. Um, including at this Hugo House event where we interviewed each other, or I interviewed him on stage, and we did a little trivia game, and then we were attacked by someone wearing a polar bear costume. And
1: I think you were uh, having uh, some cognac,
2: too. Th- that may have happened. <laughs> I think that was Neil's idea. I've certainly had cognac since then, and I think... I mean, Neil was, was and is really a pioneer in sort of not only is he an incredibly funny guy and an incredibly fine writer to boot, but also in terms of this, let's liven it up, let's, you know... Let's make a literary event fun and interesting and exciting and engaging. You yes, know?
1: amen. Yes, and,
2: um, you know he brought a little showmanship to it.
1: But what I but I what I was struck by f- from that because I, I worked there so I saw a lot of remains. Yes, they say they say it is haunted. It, it is. <laughs> really? <laughs> it did you is, see yes.
2: a ghost there or or a sense of presence? Sense
1: a presence. Did you yes, really? Yeah.
2: What did you sense?
1: A, a friendly one. It was fine. But people would come in. Some of the people who came to the classes and they'd say so and so is sitting over in the corner there, and they have like people would come in and say they could see. Ghosts and different of different ages and yeah, but anyway, that's another. This story. is a writing center in this Seattle. This is a writing center, so it kind of fits. But they did have. It's not they-
2: haunted anymore because I I cleaned it.
1: <laughs> no, you did
2: not. Yes, I did.
1: They had other people do smudgings and stuff. No, no, and no. no. I came work.
2: in. I came in and I and I did a little, a few exorcisms. <laughs> but the you- power of Dave Eggers compels you.
1: <laughs> Be healed. No be settled
2: it's a very nice place you go has <laughs>
1: it but you i thought you stood out like i know neil pollack was sort of supposed to be the funny man right but, but you were the one that when i walked away from that i thought now who is that guy he's the funny guy and so smart oh, shucks that's really that's and this it's funny that I've, I've waited all these years to tell you john
2: six years <laughs> you waited six years to tell me
1: Right. And now I've weaseled my way <laughs> in to tell you that, and so did my friends there, and we were hard nuts to crack because you know we saw so many right. readings, yeah. So and so even at that moment, well, I saw star quality. It hasn't faded yet, That's very John. kind
2: of you to say, but I don't know. You shouldn't be selling my friend Neil Pollock short. No, like I, that. I
1: don't know. I don't mean to sell, okay. sell it. This is, this is
2: this is more about we had a good time that to- that night, and we've and you know that I think is. Again, part of what what allowed—was so special to me about McSweeney's. I mean, I think it has a a, a perhaps earned but still unfair reputation for being a little twee and a little self-referential. But I think the reality is it energized a generation of writers in New York, certainly, and in Chicago, too, Um, and then around the country of people who— And one of the ways they did it was saying it's okay to be funny. You know, it's okay to have fun. It's okay for this to be fun and not just deadly serious and boring. Yes, you know, and I think that 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 legacy has really empowered a lot of writers, even a lot of writers who sort of grew up in opposition to the idea of McSweeney's. You know, who, you know, defined themselves because they were outside of what they considered to be a clique. Do you know? Oh, do you know what I mean? Yes, but I do. I think okay. a lot. You know, like those people were energized in a way too. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. To come out against something. I don't mean we, to
2: stir up those old feuds.
1: <laughs> oh come on, let's stir them. Let's let's was uh, making that
2: some some more hand, gesture the, gesture again?
1: The hand signals yeah. that yeah. Um, <laughs> well let's What is see. your
2: next question? <laughs> we finished your first question. That's
1: right. <laughs> I don't know. Have there even been any questions yet? I'm not no, sure. No,
2: just me talking again.
1: No. Well this book is fascinating.
2: Oh, thanks! Plug my book. <laughs> it's called "More Information Than You Require."
1: More information than you require, and it's it is it is fascinating.
2: It's available at bookstores. And let me ask you a question. Okay. So we we moved to Seattle to go here to graduate school. So, yes. I say yes. Um, and then you finished, and now you are teaching here. Yes. Does Peter Ho Davies still teach here? Yes, he
1: does. Yeah. Yeah. See, he's, he was published in the writer. same
2: issue of the Paris Review as I was. Oh, really? It was me, Peter Ho Davies, Chris Adrian. Elizabeth Gilbert, um, and lots of other people whose names I'm very embarrassed to be forgetting right now.
1: Well, you're on the spot. And
2: it was like a new a new writer's oh, issue.
1: Oh, nice. Oh, sweet. But,
2: but both Peter the... Davies and Liz Gilbert had been published very well already before, but that was fine. I was starstruck. Was we it had... like
1: the Younger Writers series? That something or like, something that. like yeah. that, yeah.
2: And that was how I got to know Liz Gilbert, and she's still a very dear friend, oh. and now a guru to the world. She wrote that book, e Pray, Love. That that is a major 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 bestseller but i will always think of her for her beautiful book of short stories pilgrims <laughs> <laughs> now back in print thanks to the success of her her book about her divorce
1: well and and on that note thanks for any ma- other
2: books that i can plug <laughs>
1: exactly i was thinking anything else that you want peter
2: ho davies was so nice yes. i'll plug his new book whatever it is yes
1: the. the um... The Welsh girl.
2: The Welsh girl. Boy, we took a cab home that night. I haven't seen him since, but I still think fondly of it.
1: Yeah. I think
2: we send hellos to each other through this program.
1: Oh. Oh well, so send a tell hello him I now. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you can say it now because I just he's didn't, listening. In okay, a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Manchester. <laughs> think, United yeah, exactly. Okay. All right, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk again. Oh, we are. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I
2: thought this was the end. Oh,
1: it's not. It's not over till it's over. John. Okay. Good. <laughs> You're listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel with John Hodgman. We'll be back.
0: Find a part
1: Hi, you're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, John Hodgman. Woo! I was just
2: perusing the table of contents of my book. Um,
1: as he often does. As I a, often do. At slow moments in <laughs> the day.
2: <laughs> because it occurs to me that perhaps your listeners don't Uh, know what is in my book
1: that would be can you
2: and I wanted them to to, them to know that there is a table of contents that describes it and the table of contents is easily found on page 237 (laughs) that's actually the first page in the book but we began you see my book is not a sequel to the areas of my expertise so much as it is a direct continuation so we picked up the page numbers where the last book left off so you see it has some notes on the upcoming presidential election That section is probably good for another eight days, and then we can destroy it, (laughs) (laughs) including who is going to win the presidential election, and on the matter of nutrient slime, how to tell the future, Uh, how to tell the future using a pig's spleen, more wisdom of the high old farmer, some hangover cures involving gin, how to cook owls, the internet, a series of tubes, Uh, how to gamble and win... (laughs) Um,
1: G- gambling the sport of the asthmatic man. Yes,
2: that's under the large, <laughs> long section called Gambling the sport of the asthmatic man. Um, where you may have seen me on television, some more monsters.
1: We come to the, the mole men. Landing. The moon landing. What? The mole men seem to be oh, yes,
2: they're, they're a large they are.
1: anchor of, of your new thinking. Yeah, so see,
2: in my first book, <laughs> I gave some information about the state, or I should say Commonwealth of Virginia in a larger section on uh, in which I give all the nicknames of all of the 51 United States. And in Virginia, I mentioned that the Mole Men are this advanced civilization uh, that lives underneath the earth, although they look kind of like naked mole rats and they wear powdered wigs. And they briefly settled the surface world in Virginia and built many, many hundreds of years ago the ancient Mole Palace known as Monticello. And in that first book, I just said, and I'll tell you more about the mole men later, because you know I had to move on.
1: Right, right. I had to move as on, as you
2: to, do sometimes, to West Virginia. <laughs> right. So but then uh, the mole men wouldn't let go of you, basically. Well, I had I, to, I had a promise to keep, you know, and that's part of you know any kind of storytelling, whether you're telling a joke or telling a story. You know, if you have if that was that's the shotgun above the mantelpiece that needs to be fired by the second act. And uh, and let's just say I I kind of I fired I want I fired it like crazy in the second book, <laughs> writing a, a lot more information about men than you require and their their culture and their habits and their the luminous slime that they secrete and how they helped Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence and so on.
1: So could this also be something that becomes a future project where you actually are creating like your. You're Harry Potter of Mole Men or something for the youth you of You seem to be very
2: concerned about my future. I am. And I'm well, really telling you, you <laughs> <laughs> that you should not worry about us. <laughs> I will write a third, a third volume to complete this trilogy of complete world knowledge at last and finally complete. And that will be called That Is All. And it will be follow the same format, but it will necessarily be different, I think, in terms of the subject matter and how I approach it. And there might be some more longer stuff for sure. I don't know yet. I'll mm-hmm. discover it. I'll basically, so, you haven't started it I'll,
1: working on it yet, or you have pieces? What, that how are... much
2: do you want from me? For heaven's <laughs> sakes, I'm on the Daily Show twice a month. I do the Apple ads. I wrote a book. I'm here promoting it. It's like, Why haven't you started the new one? Exactly. And when is the audiobook coming out? Listen, you people, we'll do the audiobook after we finish this tour and we know how to tell the jokes. Then we'll do the audiobook, just like last time. Please, please. I have to bathe and eat sometimes. <laughs> What was your question?
1: <laughs> well I'm sure the next book then picks up on five ninety seven. Of course. Right? And it um, will
2: and it will end on page two thousand three
1: hundred and ninety two. Aha. Uh-huh. Maybe. The prophet. The Maybe. prophet John Hodgman. Oh, I'll be lucky well,
2: if it ends on page five ninety
1: eight. Well,
2: <laughs> it's one of between the between those <laughs> it's two. A Somewhere book. in between. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. It'll
1: just have a big spine and then yeah. very loose page. But but then um but but do you think does this medium give you a chance to write everything you want to yes. write in every different which way? So why even think of going going outside of that?
2: I, I You know, I just feel that all the best things come, all the best books come in trilogies. <laughs> and so as uh, as a reader of some trilogies, you know, I know that once that fourth book comes out, I don't want to be doing a Silmarillion. Do you know what I mean? Like I could be doing a Silmarillion of fake facts after the third one. Maybe that's that's the way to go, but right now I just think we'll finish the third and see where it goes. But the reality is that, you know, this this comedic voice is not always very comedic in the book. I mean, there's lots of stuff in here that isn't that isn't laugh out loud funny. It's barely audibly chuckle funny, and some of it that is just you know me talking. Um, and I think that you know, uh, uh, these books allow me to write whatever I want in whatever order I want, and as we pointed out quite to the world's dismay not a lot of people tell me what to do at this point in these books so it's kind of a perfect place for me to be as a writer and discover what the next iteration of the voice is going to be but anything i write is is usually it's sort of like deciding how much you know how much derangement you want to like when i write a piece of serious journalism it's the same voice but i'm just holding back the other voices in my head that are crazy and like saying, why don't you just say that the you know uh, that Bruce Campbell is riding a blimp here or whatever? I'm <laughs> like, no, I can't do that here, but in these books, I can, and it's true. He and loves blimps. He does love
1: blimps, does. and and you probably know the exact date when he was writing it.
2: Uh, it was it was that it was his blimp obsession that has prevented him from making the sequel to Bubba Hotep. Um, if you're listening in Seattle. <laughs> You can yeah, apparently you have some family members who listen in some Seattle friends, and Portland. Friends so vo- family, so tomorrow, th- later this Hi, week Linda. I'll be in Chicago. Oh, at in Second Chicago. City, okay. Uh, on the 28th of October, and then um, at a board at Barnes and Noble uh, the following day in Oak Brook, Illinois, and then after the election I'll be in Seattle on the sixth, well, and Portland that weekend at the Wordstock Literary Festival. And then in San Francisco on the 10th, being interviewed by Dave Eggers uh, at the City Arts and Lectures, and then in Los Angeles on the 13th, uh, at Book Soup is doing the event, um, but I I think it's at uh, someplace in Silver Lake. Uh, all the information is available on my website areasofmyexpertise.com in great detail, and you will see that in With all of those West Coast states, Jonathan Colton will be back from England and, oh, wonderful. and playing along. Oh, wonderful! And as well in Seattle and in Portland, John Roderick of the Long Winters. And in Seattle only, Sean Nelson, also formerly oh, yes. of The Long Winters. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. It's going to be a big show. Big show in Seattle big and sh- Portland. Big and times. There will all be big shows. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, we got you first here in Ann Arbor.
2: That's right. Well, not actually. I've, oh, no, wait. I did Philadelphia, actually... Brookline, yeah. uh, Washington, D.C., <laughs> and New York before you.
1: So basically, we're in the Midwest, and we're in the middle of your tour.
2: Yeah, but you got me before, you got me before Thacker Mountain Radio in Oxford, Mississippi. Which is a great radio that's, show, which you should listen to online. Uh, that'll be in November. Okay. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, that's that sounds great. How with these facts, John? Oh. What do you do? Like when you're coming up, because it's it's it seems You've like run almost, out of
2: time for questions. Almost
1: oppressive. No. If you oh oh two minutes okay two min- Oh, god well how do you do it with all the facts like is it oppressive every day Don't, day after just day after calm day calm down
2: calm down there's <laughs> plenty of time left you know an average daily show bit that I do is three and a half minutes long. The whole thing, three and a half minutes, four minutes at most. Yeah, if it's four it like minutes. It's long.
1: Working in that small of a space
2: then. It's very nerve wracking uh, because as you can tell, I'm pretty digressive by nature, but it has been a real a skill to learn to, because, you know, I usually, they'll give me a topic and I'll usually write a first draft, not always, but usually I'll write a first draft to sort of get my, my say in. And then it goes into a very collaborative process with John and the executive producers until right up until the moment before we air. But it's got, you know, it's it's the, the final stage is always cutting, 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 cutting. Mm-hmm. And it's been really, you know, you can tell how little I like to cut. You know what I mean? Like, I like to go long. Um, but that's a very good exercise in cutting discipline. They're very, you, you don't really need to be writing so much. <laughs> <laughs> to be no as funny does. as
1: you are. To, ever. <laughs> <laughs> to
2: well, get across the ideas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks John. Thanks thanks Thank for coming on the program tea. today. It
2: was great to be here as usual.
1: Oh, as usual come make it more usual.
2: Okay. <laughs> Call
1: in sometime.
2: Yeah, well I'll <laughs> see you in that uh, special secret show that we're doing on Exactly. In August, We've, what what time is it again? I think Hugh, it was do you th-
1: remember? Like three fifteen or something. We'll
2: announce it after the after the uh, end of the show. <laughs> okay. Okay,
1: okay. So you, you've been listening to Living Writers today, John Hodgman with his latest, more information than you require. Um, thanks again to Hugh Stimson for engineering. I'm T Hetzel. Until next time.
2: Luckily, I'm still living, so that <laughs> may be qualified to be on the show.
1: Amen. <laughs>
0: Try. I'd love an answer that isn't sly so. So you say. Don't toast the day before the twilight. You, I'm a pushover. lined up in front of Brown, they're going to give it to him on that left side once again to the 50, big hole of the 20, 25-30, 35-40, 30. look out, 45-50, it's a foot race, down the sideline to the 30, to the 20, nobody's going to catch him, 10-5, touchdown Michigan! What a run by Carlos Brown! You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBM 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor.